Well, we've been uh, looking at the story of King David, and one of the things I've been repeating throughout the last several weeks is what a good man David was. David was just a good guy. He was amazing. He didn't fit into the world. He was so different in a good way. I mean, when all of Israel was running away from Goliath, he was running at Goliath. He was more concerned about God's honor than his own safety, and he figured, you know, anybody that's going to insult God's people like that needs to be taken down, while everybody else, their primary concern was their own safety. That's the kind of guy David was. And then Saul was so jealous of him because of the honors he got for killing Goliath, Saul constantly tried to hunt him down and murder him. Well, David had Saul in his hands on more than one occasion and refused to take Saul out. Anybody else would have just killed that man to protect themselves, not David. God chose David, and I'm not messing with it. Let God do what God's going to do. Wow, good man. And then when Saul ended up dying on the field of battle, um, Scripture says he killed himself, but the way it was worded, I told you, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But this guy claimed to have killed Saul, and when he told that to David, David had him executed. You killed the king of Israel, and you want me to reward you? Uh Uh-uh. So he had the guy executed. And then one of Saul's sons, um, what was his name? I've got it written down here. I always forget this name. Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth became king of Israel. David became king of Judah. And they were rival kingdoms. Uh, Judah was doing great. Israel was doing poorly. But a couple of Ishbosheth's commanders actually killed him, brought his head or something to David and said, Look, we've taken out your enemy, expecting some sort of reward. Their reward was execution for murder. See, David wasn't like your typical king who would have rewarded him for taking out an adversary. David was a good, righteous man. And then he goes and he looks for a descendant of Jonathan, Saul's son, for one reason one reason only. Not the typical reason to wipe out all the opposing guys who could take his throne, but to reward him because he loved his father, Jonathan. Even though the guy was crippled, he he gave him all of his grandfather's property back, brought him into his palace and said, you're going to feast at my table for the rest of your days. He expected to be killed because that's what a king would have done. But David was not your typical king. He was a good man. But having said all that, he was still just a man. And one day he fell and he fell hard. I'm sure you've heard the story of, of David and Bathsheba. But for those of you who haven't, or maybe to freshen up the story for you. Uh, David was just out on his rooftop one day, and he saw this beautiful woman bathing. Now, in our culture, we don't understand how that works. We don't hang out on our roofs. And even, even if we did, it would look a little different. Let me show you a picture. All right, this is actually, this is called, it's an archaeological dig in Jerusalem called the City of David. This is where they believe David's actual first palace was built. They've unearthed portions of it. And you can see how terraced it is. So if you're up on this platform, which might, let's say, have been the rooftop, look at how terraced it is. Now, let me show you across the valley what it would look like. Next slide. Look at that. So you can see that if you lived up here and somebody was down here bathing, or you lived up here and somebody was down here bathing, no privacy. I don't know what the people were thinking, why she was outside in her skivvies and her birthday suit taking a bath. Obviously, she had to know somebody could see her. Or maybe it was a new palace, and she never thought that the next level... I don't know. All I know is David saw a beautiful woman in her birthday suit, and he fell for her. 
Well, he fell hard. And he went to one of his servants and said, go get her for me. Brought her into the palace. They slept together, sent her home. Big sin, big bad thing. She was married. He was married. They were not married to each other. The story could have ended there till he got a note one day that said, Dear David, I am with child, Bathsheba. Now David is going, Oh no, I thought I did this on the down low. I'm busted. It's real easy to get somebody pregnant. It's very hard to get them unpregnant. What do I do? So David comes up with this brilliant plan. He says, I will send for her husband who's off fighting my war. Send him home so they can be together and then he'll think it's his baby. Brilliant plan, David. What happens when the baby grows up and has your hair and your eyes, man? But I guess he didn't think that far. He just thought this might cover it. So the man comes home, but he refuses to go home. He says, my brothers in arms are fighting out on the field. I'm not going to go home and have comforts of home while they're out fighting in the field. I'll sleep on the floor and go back to my guys in the morning. David was like, oh. So he thinks, he thinks, he thinks. Ah. So he writes down a letter, seals it, stamps it, says, take this to your commander. So he goes back to the field, hands the letter to the commander. The commander opens it up, and I'm sure Uriah, the husband, is standing right there while the commander reads it. And the letter says, I think it was Joab, Dear Joab, uh, you see Uriah who just handed you this letter? Yes, kill him. Here's what I want you to do. Put him where the fighting is the fiercest, by the wall, and then when it's really bad, have everybody withdraw but him. Commander should have said, no, I don't think so. But he was an obedient man, did what David the king said. Uriah died. David figures, wow, I really dodged that bullet. What was going through this, this man's mind? Five parts to this story of David and Bathsheba and his sin. The temptation. The sin. Covering up the sin, or at least trying to. Then we get to the confessing of the sin and the consequences of the sin. So first, the temptation. We all face temptation, probably all the time. Let me tell you something. Temptation is not a sin. It's what we do with the temptation. Temptation, look at it as an opportunity to overcome sin. Temptation is a chance to show who you are before God. It's an opportunity to be strong. But we don't always pass that test. David was up on the roof. He could not help what he saw. He could not help how he felt when he saw it. Those two things were not sin. But he could help what he did next. That's when it became sin. Listen to how James puts it. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Temptation allures to our evil desires. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. 
So the temptation is the opportunity to pass or fail a test. In this instance, David failed. He passed lots of others. But this time he failed, and he failed hard. Two primary sins involved. Lust and adultery, which of course was followed up with murder. Listen to what Jesus said. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So what's Jesus talking about? Cutting out our eyeballs and cutting off our hands. Hey, you see a beautiful woman? That's fine. Just pluck out your eyeball. You'll do well. He's not being literal here. (laughs) I mean, plucking out your eyeballs won't stop you from lusting anyway. But he is saying sin is so serious that do everything within your power to avoid it. That's what he was saying. David did not do that. David could have done this. Whoa! Get me one of the maids, quick! Leaves the roof, says, okay, go up on the roof, tell me what you see. Woo, David, I saw that. Go talk to that woman, please. Let her know from the palace roof she's got no privacy, okay? Thanks. Could have done that. He could have gone down to the royal architect and said, hey, we need a new wall. (laughs) Could have done that. He could have sent the royal architect to Bathsheba's house and said, you need a new wall. Could have done that. Hey, I've got a buddy who lived next door to a pretty woman with a swimming pool who liked to take off her top. He never committed adultery. David blew it. He could have done better. He didn't. It's all his fault. We should do everything that's within our power to end the temptation before it ruins us. So let me ask you something. What sin, what temptation are you struggling with right now? Did you get a piece of paper when you came in this morning? Take it out. Hold it up. Good. Hey, if you ushers in the back can hear me, bring out those papers. I want to get one to everybody who doesn't have one. You'll notice this little T-chart on the left-hand side. It says my struggle. If you need one, put up your hands because I'm going to give you a few minutes now to actually fill this out. On the left hand, it says my struggle. On the right hand, it says ways of escape. Now listen. You're sitting close to people. You may not want them to see your struggle. Fine. Write it in code. If I was filling it out and I was sitting there, I'd say, you know. And then you could start writing out your ways to escape. Maybe you're like, you want to go sit over in that corner so nobody messes with you. Go ahead. I want you to actually take a few moments right now to seriously, thoughtfully consider your life. What are you struggling with? Don't write down 10 things and get overwhelmed. Write down one, the one big thing. You know what it is. For some of you, it might be easy. Alcohol, drugs, lying. Stealing, whatever, tithing, the thing that's in your life that you can't overcome could be a positive thing. You're not doing the positive thing. I don't know. That's your struggle. You put it on the left-hand side. Make it the biggest one in your life. 
And on the right-hand side, ways of escape. Like I just told you with David, he could have left the roof, sent a maid, built a wall, had them build a wall. There's ways to get away. We just don't think about them. Right now, I want you to think about them. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know. Fine. When you go home, get some advice. Talk to other people and say, hey, I'm in this situation. What do I do? Well, what's your situation? Well, every time I go into a bar, I can't help myself. I have to have a beer. And one becomes 12. Well, hmm, I might be pressing it here, but how about you stop going to the bar? Just saying. Oh, why didn't I think of that? Now, your situation may not be that simple. Your situation may be a lot harder. It may be, my boss is constantly urging me to be dishonest. What do I do? Go up to your boss and say, hey, I'm not going to be dishonest. You can fire me if you want, but I will not be dishonest. And by the way, if you fire me, I'm going to sue you, so leave me alone. You could do that. You could quit. You could start a rival company. There are options. So take a couple minutes. We're going to put on some music. Close your eyes, meditate a little, and try to figure out ways to escape your biggest temptation. And I'll be back with you in just a couple minutes. that fun <laughs> stop stop I don't know how to stop it so take your little sheet of paper home finish up on it listen it's not enough in my mind as a pastor to tell you to do right it's not enough in my mind as a pastor to show you how to do right 
I'm going to spoon feed you the best I can. And this is for me too. I'm not saying I, I've already been there, so no. We need to take this data that we learn in the Bible and live it out. And if the Bible tells us to flee from temptation, and it does, and we find ourselves not knowing how to do that, then it's kind of a no-brainer to actually just sit down and think on it. But we don't do that. We need to do that. So take that home and work on it. So, five-part process. David was tempted. That wasn't the sin. After he made his decision to follow through, there was the sin. So part two is he fell. He sinned. Part three, he tried to cover his sin. And you notice, in trying to cover his sin, it led to more sin. It was bad enough he committed adultery. Hey, let's wrap up this adultery sandwich with uh, murder bread. I mean, yeah, that'll make it better. Let's do that. In fact, let's kill a few of them. Why not? That's how sin is. It, it doesn't leave you alone. It gets its hooks into you and makes you want to do worse and worse. You do something wrong, your immediate response is, lie about it so nobody knows you did wrong. So do wrong again. It's, it's human nature, and we've got to under, overcome our human nature. And we can. We do it all the time. Somebody caught you off in traffic, your human nature is to run them off the road and shoot them. But you don't. You're overcoming that. You wait in line at the grocery store for a long time. Somebody cuts you off. You want to tell them what you think of that, but you don't. You visit the dentist. Pain-free dental work. But you don't. <laughs> We can overcome our nature. It just takes some work. When we sin, of course, we want to not let anybody know about it. And I'm not saying you should always go blab all your business to people, but covering up our sin just doesn't work in that sense. Like David tried, look what happened. By the way, like, didn't God know? God sent a prophet to David. And this is the first time the prophet appears on the scene. And the prophet says, he comes up to David, whether David knows he's a prophet at this point or not, I don't know. But he comes up to David, and let me paraphrase the story for you. David, we've got a problem in the kingdom. We need your brilliance. Would you please help? Oh, sure. What is it? Well, not far from here, there's this guy who owns all sorts of sheep. He's an extremely wealthy man, has 10,000 head of sheep. Down the road from him is one of the poorest guys around, only owns one sheep. But he loves the sheep. He's raised it from like a baby sheep. It sits in his lap. It eats at his table. It's like a daughter to him. The family just loves the sheep. Well, the wealthy guy had a visitor come to town, and he didn't want to kill one of his own sheep to feed the guy. He went and stole that guy's sheep, killed it, and fed it to the guy. Remember, I told you, David was a good man. David was furious when he heard about this. He said, that man, ooh, he deserves to die. Well, he's going to pay back four times the sheep. You go tell him. And then David said, you're the man. What? You have multiple wives. You could have had more wives, but Uriah had one wife, Bathsheba. And you went and you took her and you killed her husband. David thought it was a secret. Boy. Imagine what his face looked like at that moment. This thing is surely found out. People, you cannot hide your sins. Not for long, not forever, and definitely not for good. This happens to me in my life time and again. First time I remember, I was somewhere around 12. I lived in Southern California. I moved to Southern Florida. 
So from the furthest extreme to the furthest extreme in this country, went to a Little League baseball game and ran into somebody I knew from my neighborhood in California. What are the odds? Go ahead, try to hide your sin. Try to go somewhere where people won't notice you. Ain't gonna happen. There's a multi-million dollar ad campaign trying to convince you it will. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, it doesn't. That's a lie from the pit. They're trying to tell you, hey, come to Vegas, let loose, let free, be immoral. Nobody will know. Nobody will tell. It's okay in Vegas. I took a vacation in Vegas one day, got onto the elevator and ran into somebody I knew. I was in Israel, first time in my life, within one mile, ran into three people I knew. Yeah, go ahead and try to hide your sin. It ain't going to happen. Somebody will find you out. You could be in the darkest, dimmest hole. Somebody's going to recognize you. Moses wrote, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. What happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas, people. Even if you could hide it for a year or two, God has a mansion in Vegas. God's on the elevator in Vegas. God is in every hotel room on the planet, every campsite, every computer, every bar, every street corner. We can't hide from God. God sees all and knows all. And in this occasion, he sent David, one of his messengers, to point that out to David. David was a good man. When confronted with his sin, he immediately repented. Saul, David's predecessor, was confronted with his sin. He made excuses. Time and time again, tried to justify his sin. Saul was a bad man and a bad king. David committed murder and adultery. He was a good man. How can you say that, Steve? He wasn't good then. You know, there's only one man who's ever lived who hasn't sinned. He died for your sins. So when I say somebody's a good man, David had a heart. He loved God. He tried to do good. He usually did good. He screwed up royally. And he repented royally. That's why he was a good man. Well, after this incident, David, who wrote at least half the Psalms, wrote this Psalm. Listen. Be merciful to me, God, because of your constant love. Because of your great mercy, wipe away my sins. Wash away all my evil and make me clean from my sin. I recognize my faults. I'm always conscious of my sins. I have sinned against you, only against you, and done what you consider evil. So you are right in judging me. You are justified in condemning me. Create a pure heart in me, O God, and put a new and loyal spirit in me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Give me again the joy that comes from your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. You don't want sacrifices. I would offer them. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. My sacrifice is a humble spirit, O God. You will not reject a humble and repentant heart. 
you don't memorize any passage of Scripture, memorize that one. God will not reject a humble and repentant heart, even if the person is a murderer and an adulterer. God will not reject a humble and repentant heart. He was a good man, but he wasn't a perfect man. When he failed, he came to God and God forgave him. David deserved to die. The punishment for murder is execution. The punishment for adultery in the Bible was execution. He deserved to die twice, but God said, no, I'm not going to let you die. You'll live. But nevertheless, and this brings us to the fifth point, there are consequences for sin. Even sin repented of, even sin forgiven. Let's say, for example, silly illustration, but just to get my point, you go out one night, you get drunk, you steal your friend's chainsaw, and you're playing with it, and you drop it, and it cuts off your leg. You go to the hospital, get, get yourself sewn up, you're half a leg short, you go home and you repent for your foolishness, and God forgives you. But you still have half a leg. That would be an example of consequences for sin, even though you can be forgiven. Okay? Things happen. David was forgiven. Did that make Bathsheba's family all better? No. No, it didn't. Let me read to you some of the consequences of this sin. You know, it's interesting. When you and I sin, we don't often know the consequences. We might see an immediate consequence, losing our job, getting banished from a sporting event, whatever. But the lingering consequences, we don't often see until we trip over them through the coming years. God told David right up front, this is what's going to happen because of your sin. I don't know if I'd like that. David had to anticipate all this misery coming down the pike. Why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. I underlined this in my notes. I should have done it on the screen for you. He said, you despised the word of the Lord, you despised me. God told David that his sin was the exact same thing as despising God. David was a man after God's own heart. How do you think he felt when he realized his behavior was really despising God? Just the opposite of something David would have wanted. Just the opposite of something you would have wanted. But when you break the word of the Lord, you are despising God. No sense in candy coating it. That's how God sees it. Is he willing to forgive you? Sure. But that doesn't take away the fact that you're despising God. Now, we are Christians. We love the Lord our God with all our hearts, our souls, our mind, and our strength. The worst thing we can do is despise the God who sent his son to die for us. So don't willfully sin, because it's no good. You despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Oftentimes in the Bible, when God judges a kingdom, a king, a person, a people group, the judgment often parallels the sin. In other words, they're judged in a way 
that they get what they gave. Judgment like is like. You did it, you're going to get it. You know? You made your bed, lie in it. That sort of thing. Let me point this out for you. David, it said, David, you struck down Uriah the Hittite. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. God's judgment. Therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. You use, this, you use violence in your sin, violence is coming into your house. It's judgment of like for like. David harmed Uriah and Bathsheba's family. His sin was against another family also. Here's what God says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. You ruin somebody else's household, I'm bringing calamity or ruin upon your household. David stole Uriah's wife. So the Lord says, before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight, which ties to the next one. David tried to hide his sin. God said, you did it in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before, every, before all of Israel. David tried to be all secret about his sin. God's going to put it on CNN, Fox News, Wall Street Journal, and all the billboards in town. You can't hide from your sin. And it's interesting. David was the leader in Israel, and God was going to show everybody what he did. There's a passage in the New Testament that says elders who sin should be corrected, rebuked publicly. So though it upset us and broke our hearts to hear what happened to Ted Haggard not too long ago, his exposure was biblical. He was a big man and a big leader. Big failure. Hurt a lot of people. Why? why? Why public humiliation? So other people will see it and learn from it and be afraid to do the same thing lest it comes upon them. Because the last thing God wants to see is it to happen to somebody else. Hey, look, Fred, Jack, James, they all got away with it. I'll do it too. Mm -mm. Fred, he's on TV. Jack, he's in jail. James lost his ministry and his wife. I'm staying away from that mess. That's the hope of God with public exp exposing. So, the things that tempt us, they look really appealing. And Bathsheba was beautiful. But the price is too high. It's never worth the price. Sin is never worth the price. We're going to have to pay for it. But if we're not intentional in resisting our sin, it's going to win. And that's why I gave you the T-chart, to help you be intentional on those things that are trying to trip you up. I've told you, we can battle temptation and we can win. 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Most people don't read the next verse. I'll read the first part of it. He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee. You know the story of Joseph. He was brought in as a slave to run Potiphar's estate. He was quite successful. Potiphar's wife had an eye for Joseph. He was a handsome young man. She said, come on, sweetie, my bedroom, this way. Your master's off at work. No, are you kidding me? My master's treating me well. How could I sin against God like that? No. She was unrelenting. One day she actually grabbed a hold of him. He shrugged out of his robe and he ran. Flee. 
flee. No temptation has seized you. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. I was talking to somebody during our little break while you're filling out your T-chart, and he said, my problem isn't knowing how to flee. I know how to flee. <laughs> problem is actually wanting to flee. It's the will. It's putting it to practice. I said, good point. I understand. I get that. The devil is not your friend. Your flesh is not your friend. But we have a friend in Jesus. He died for David's sin to redeem David and bring him to heaven. He died for a murderer and an adulterer who despised him. He died for you too. The only thing that separates us from David is whether or not when we sin, we're willing to confess it and repent before God.